Uh, we're going to look again to Isaiah chapter 40. Turn there with me. Isaiah 40. Great truths. I was out this morning. Things a little different because of the early part of daylight savings time, which I read may be permanent. We'll see what happens if it goes to the House and the President. Senate passed it. Um, but it's a little difficult this time of the year because, you know, on Sunday mornings I get up early and at 5.30 or 6 a.m. it's still, even at 6.30, it's still dark out. So I have to figure that out, get a, a light on my phone or something like that turned towards me. Uh, but I enjoy doing that to get out, think about, going to sh communicate and then share it with uh, others. So just briefly pray with me. Father, thank you for your mercy you give us and great truths that we have sung, great reminders of your goodness. We thank you for your mercy in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, we had, you had a chance to sign up for the Sundays at the Hargroves, and um, we'll have uh, several more weeks for you to do that. And as well, I think you can sign up sort of the old-fashioned way right there in the binder as well. But we turn our attention to God's Word. Let me read for you the passage on the consideration. Isaiah 40, verses 21 to 26. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the... It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Great truth, isn't it? Um, I think you would agree with this statement, and it goes something like this. Um, rarely are people convinced with a single argument to change their mind on an issue, and especially when emotions are involved. Do you agree with that? Uh, rarely can you say to a person, um, I disagree with you. Here is one reason why, and they'll say to you, ah, now that you've said that, I have a total change in mind. Uh, you're counseling with the person and you say, I'm not sure if that's the best decision. Here's one reason that I think you should stop. Now, it's something they've been doing for years, perhaps. Oh, now that I've heard that one reason, an absolute change in course is going to take place. That's rarely the case. And I would say even for all of you here, most likely, um, the first time you heard the gospel, did you believe in the Lord Jesus no, I mean, it's rare. I've heard of occasions where the first time someone heard the gospel and they believed. 
but most likely it was time and time again. And for perhaps many of you, it was over the course of years, you heard the gospel preach, you heard messages, you read scriptures, you read banners, whatever it may have been, and you consistently said, no, no, no. And what is interesting about uh, this passage before us, as we've said already, Isaiah, through inspired by God, is taking the people of God through an argument. It's a court case. And in one sense, God is on trial because the people of God are saying, God, we don't know that you're faithful. We don't know that you're capable of keeping your promises. Here we are in exile, and we're wondering whether or not you can overcome this great Babylonian empire. And as I said before, throughout these messages, and there's great import for us today because we look at the lessons that the people of God would learn, you know, 2,500 years ago, and they're relevant for us today because we look at them and say, God, you are that same God who is absolutely, totally faithful. I can trust you in every life, life circumstances. Because when we think about a court case, as God is putting forth this case to say, I am capable of fulfilling our promises, every court case has a series of what? A series of arguments. And they're going to be counter arguments, and they're going to be briefs, and they're going to be objections, and there will be appeals, and then closing arguments to say, now, what is your verdict? And this is what God has really been doing in Isaiah 40, saying, here is my argument. I'm calling out that you should be comforted. Here's my argument. I'm calling forth that I'm capable of bringing you back again because I am the creator. Uh, I am the sustainer. I am the one who can come with great might, but I'm also the one who will come with the, uh, the, the sort of the, the attitude of a shepherd, and I will gather you together like nursing lambs. I'm the one who calls the stars into being. I'm the one to, that looks at the nations, and they're nothing but a drop from the bucket. Why would you not trust me? And this is a word for us today. Um, rarely does one see um, a case, again, where there is a prosecution or a defense, and they simply make one statement. They turn to perhaps a panel of judges, or they turn to the jurors and say, my client is, in fact, not guilty. Thank you. That's all I have to say. <laughs> and no one stands up and says, this person, the state's evidence is this. We just believe he did it. And they sit down. Never happens, will it? As a matter of fact, there have been long um, trials. I came across some information that's very interesting. Uh, the big Martin preschool abuse case. The longest and most expensive criminal trial in American history. Um, it lasted seven years and cost the government $15 million dollars. In the end, the outcome is not what they wanted. Imagine that, seven years, $15 million. That's a lot of arguments and a lot of briefs and a lot of objections and appeals and counter-arguments. But in the end, was a failure. In Isaiah 40, you see these series of messages, and these messages are full of arguments and counter-arguments and objections and even proposed objections, and then an answer to that proposed objection saying, trust the living God. Although you're in exile, God is faithful. He said he's going to believe that. And for us today in 2022, uh, that same truth is relevant for us today because we can take it and apply it and say, God, in whatever circumstance I find myself, 
I can trust that your outcome will come about. Now, let me pause for a second and caution you because some people may say, well, does that mean that every difficulty I'm faced with, God is going to bring it to an end? Does that mean every sickness I have, the outcome is going to be healing? Does it mean every opportunity that I would want in life, God is going to give it to me? And we know that there's some people uh, who are not true ministers of the gospel that would propose something like that, but that's not true. And we even have to think about this in the context of Babylon. I mean, they are, the people of God of Judah are in exile. And they've been there not for a couple weeks or a couple days or even several years, a long period of time. And they wonder, when is this going to end? And one may find themselves in a situation like that as well. And you're in the midst of a difficulty in life and you wonder, when is this going to end? But what we concluded last week, and in one sense, uh, uh, the lesson before and the lesson before, without saying it directly, it will end when a sovereign God says, time is enough. Is that agreeable? (laughs) Absolutely. It is. And so I want us to consider this. There are two, we'll call them two formidable arguments um, that further the case that God is capable of keeping his promises. Now, all the arguments are weighty, and these two are weighty as well. And let me start off right away. What is argument number one? God will keep his promises because he is sovereign over history. Verses 21 to 24. He is sovereign over. What does it say? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And of course, he concludes or he begins the next section after the conclusion of the previous one, which is making the argument that essentially says, why would you in fact not trust me? I'm the one who measured the waters in the hollow of his hands. I marked off the heavens by the span. If you remember, what is the length of a span? Does anyone remember what's the length of a span? Stretch out your hand from the the pinky to um, the thumb. That's a span. He says, it's nothing to me. I stretch it out just with the span. None none of you have directed my spirit, he says in verse 13. The nations are like a drop from the bucket. You pull up water from a well and a drop comes out. That are the nations. They're nothing before God. And then he says, to whom will you liken me? Will you liken me? I craft the universe. They craft an idol and they have to craft an idol so much that it doesn't even totter over. Is that really demonstrating power? Obviously not. So then he says, picking up the argument further with these rhetorical questions, and what's interesting about it is this, the rhetorical questions form a chiasm. That is, here are these truths that are coming to a point. And here is the first part of it. He says, no. And then the last part, he says, understand. In the middle, he says, heard and declared. Now, why is that important? Why is no, heard, declared, and understood important? Because even if you look at the language, uh, the tense of them changes, and he's trying to make a point. So he says no in an imperfect tense. And what's connected to no, the last statement, understood, is in a perfect tense. So imperfect to perfect. So he says no. How do they continue to know? Because they have gained understanding. And then he says, heard and declared. So heard, imperfect tense. How does one keep hearing properly? Well, because declared, perfect tense, it has been declared to them. 
Just like you, you come to faith. Someone made a declaration to you and you believe that declaration and now you continue to believe the declaration. So he says, by way of these rhetorical questions, Judah, don't you know? Of course you should. You were given understanding, but you have put aside the understanding. He says, Judah, have you not heard? Of course you have heard because it has been declared to you through all the prophets, through many ages and through many things and through many situations. So you have heard, but yet you have put aside your hearing. It's sometimes people hear. Um, Have you ever talked to someone and you ask them this question? Are you listening to me? And they say, I heard you. (laughs) Well, see, all of you have done it before, have you not? (laughs) And what there's a difference between saying I heard you and you've actually what? Listened. (laughs) I truly heard you. Because we live in an age of multitasking, do we not? So we have smartphone, iPad, and someone's having a conversation with us. And sometimes we have to say one to the other, will you please put that down? Put any, yeah, I heard phone out there, right? Put the smartphone down because it's making you, I won't say it. <laughs> the opposite of smart being what? <laughs> That's right. Put it down for a moment. So he says, You should know these things. They've been declared to you. I gave you understanding. You have heard I declared them to you from the prophets. This goes back to the ways of old is what he's saying. But yet, some of you haven't really heard truly. So let me put forth my case again. Just so your memory is not serving you well. And then notice in verses 22 to 24. There is his absolute reign. So the rhetorical questions open the passage, the absolute reign, and it's set apart by these words, key words, sits and stretches and spreads and reduces and makes and blows. And and we want to understand them. So piece by piece, what does he say in verse 22? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. So he takes us back to the thought of creation here and the circle of the earth. Most likely he's referring to when one looks out and they see the horizon, they see the horizon, there's a what? Shape to it, is it not? Uh, Many times in in my travels, I've, you know, been many different places and um, I, I love at times to have a window seat, most likely I'm an aisle, but at times a window seat. And it's wonderful to look out and see the horizon at times when you're sort of chasing the sunset. It's beautiful to see. And you realize in that moment, even God is the creating God. And he says, I'm the one that sit above the horizon. And this is really a picture of perhaps it's an image of a king that would sit above his throne. And you never find a king that sits on a throne that's lower than, than his subjects. Will you ever find that? No, you won't. And even in certain cultures, it would be such that a person could never be higher than that person of royalty. And they would literally have to bow down. And so he says, I'm the king that sits above the circle of the earth. If you look out into the horizon, I am there. Although you may not see me, I am there because I'm the creating God. I am the king of the earth. And then notice what else he says. He stretches. Well, before he says that, the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So in comparison to this great God, they're like grasshoppers. Now I ask you a question. Uh, where might the mind go when you think about grasshoppers and, and not 
um, I think about um, Numbers 13. Numbers 13, what happened? The spies went into the land, and some were saying that we are like what to them? We're like grasshoppers to them. And in one sense, what God is saying to the people of God now, you must have the spirit of Joshua and Caleb who recognize, yes, they were a mighty people, but they recognize that our God is mightier. Amen. And so this question that Isaiah even makes here, the inhabitants, the people, they're like grasshoppers. They're nothing to the living God. And then he says he stretches out, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And why this imagery? Look with me to the book. Uh, go with me to the book of Amos. Go with me to Amos, if you will. And I want you to see something in Amos. Skip past it. And notice, if you will, in Amos 4.13. 4.13, we see a, a declaration that is there. In 4.13, it says here, For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his... He who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Look at Amos chapter 5. Amos 5, then verse 8. And here it says, uh, He who made Pleiades in Orion, uh, Orion, and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls the waters of the sea, who pours them out on the surface of the earth. So when we look into the heavens and we see its creation and we see the stars, we see the constellation, God is saying, I have ordered all of them. Look at Amos chapter 9. Amos 9. And what does it tell us in Amos 9 verse 5? It says, the Lord of hosts, a Yahweh God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it and all the dwell in it mourn and all of it rises up like the Nile and subdues like the Nile of Egypt. So he is, in fact, this great creating God. He stretches out. But notice the language. If you go back to uh, Isaiah, he stretches it out. In what way does he do it? He stretches it out like a curtain. And why does he here say a curtain? Because it's relatively, and not relatively, it's absolutely effortless for God. So when we pull back a curtain, he's simply saying, take all the heavens themselves and I pull it back like a curtain. It is nothing to me. And then he says, what else? And he spreads them out like a, twint, a tent to dwell in. So um, when the people of God, as they were pilgrims, uh, they would pinch, pitch their tent. And pitching a tent uh, is relatively easy to do, uh, especially, and I've done a lot some hiking through my, remember once climbing up to Whitney and having just a one-man tent. Very easy to pop, and I'm ready to go. Um, my days with the family, when we had, you know, all the kids in the home, and we would go camping, and um, <laughs> that was a treat. Uh, <laughs> hours to get the car ready, uh, an hour to get all the kids inside. Here's your space. Put your feet here. You have to have your foot on top of the cooler. It'll, it'll be okay. We'll get that in about nine hours, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
Then you get there and you pitch your tent, you put all your stuff out, and then it's time to go. And you have to clean it up, you bring it back home, then you have to clean it again. And literally what I did after one of those occasions, I said, that's the last time. <laughs> I mean, I liked outdoors, but the tent, I just, I, you know, I don't mind being a little rustic, get a little dirty. I don't mind that. But oh my word, it was quite the task. And there it was for our little camp, Sequoia, Kings Canyon, Redwoods, places like that. Um, God says, the heavens, they're like a tent for me. It's nothing. It's insignificant. The heavens is like a curtain. I just pull it back. And you believe that I can't keep my promises? Absolutely, I will. And what else does he declare here? So he, he does what? He, he sits, he stretches, he spreads, but he also reduces. Notice verse 23. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing. So these rulers are princes, he says. And here we find this word again, nothing. You remember uh, verse 17. How does verse 17 end? Go back there with me. It says, all the nations are as nothing before him, and they are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. So the nations themselves, nothing, which would also conclude that the rulers within the nations are what? Are nothing. And notice what else he does. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Now, this is important because here uh, is the language of creation, but in reverse, if you will. You say, why so? Go back to verse 17 again. He says, the nations are nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Or here he's saying, the judges of the earth, back in 23, meaningless. Or the Hebrew word here is for chaos. Now, hmm creation, what happened? When God, before creation, he looked at uh, the form, the, the matters in the universe, and they were what? They were formless and void. They were in a state of chaos. And what did God do? God created order from them. And what God is saying here, I simply a word from my mouth. I make these judges who are supposed to be those that are superior in their intellect and their moral capabilities. They are nothing at all. I make them chaotic, if you will, void. They don't count. They're muted. And God has been doing that throughout history. God did it with Egypt. He, has, he did it with the, the people of Canaan. He did it with the Assyrians. And remind yourselves of the Assyrians. Go back with me to something that we studied last year sometime in Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37. And, of course, it begins with 36. King Hezekiah, Shennacherib comes upon him. Um, he sends forth the rapture card to make these declarations that the people of God have no chance because... At all the peoples of the land, notice 3711, and it says, What behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? And here is will God keep his promise? God promised that Jerusalem wouldn't fall. I don't believe he can keep that promise because look what we've done to all the other gods. Verse 12. Did the gods of those nations which my fathers have destroyed deliver them? that Gozen and Haram and Rezeph and the sons of Eden and Talisar, 
that the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, um, the city of Serevahim, and Hena and Iva, did they all survive? Of course they didn't survive. Why? Because they were protected by gods. And remember, we've already established in this passage, even the gods are nothing. They require someone to nail them into the ground so they don't totter over. Because they're meaningless and void. And those that follow them are meaningless and void. But then he goes on. Um, in verse 24, notice what he says. Scarcely they have planted, who are they? The rulers, the judges, the nations. Scarcely they have been sown. Scarcely their stock has taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them and they wither. So he's taking us back to the thought of verses 6 through 8. That all men, all flesh is like what? They're like the flower of the field. And what happens to that flower when the heat of the day comes? It all withers away. And why this language, scarcely, at least the... The Nazbi has scarcely, or it's saying not even have they. They begin to be planted and they're sown and they take root and God says enough. And obviously when, I don't know if any of you have ever worked in how much you work sort of thing. And I've done some transferring of plants or trees and it's really important that you obviously not cut it out too far into the root. Dig as far as you can around it. Take the soil, sort of the native soil with it and transfer it somewhere else. And the best time to do that, obviously, is when the roots have not done what? They've not gone deeply into the ground. Oh, you put it into the ground one day, you think to yourself, oh, that's really not the best spot for it. Let's move it. It's not going to be a tr- much trouble. You let it go through several seasons, difficulty to try to move it and have it survive. And the picture that he's given here, these nations, they take root. Now, for God, you say, well, how long did they take root? It doesn't matter for God because God is infinite. So even if the nations took root for 100 years, maybe if it was multiple dynasties, one after the other, a dynasty, God says, you haven't even taken root because I'm going to blow on you and your time is over. That's what he's saying. You're insignificant, really. So he blows on them. He sends forth his judgment. Here's the second truth. Second truth is this. God will keep his promises because he is holy in character. Holy in character. And verse 25, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. So we see here this self-declaration of God's holiness. Important even in the words here. Says, imperfect tense. So God keeps saying that I am holy. He continues to make the declaration that I am holy. And they should have heard that, but they did not. They refused in one sense to to open their ears. They were being influenced by the vulture and the Babylonian gods. So God makes a declaration to them. Remember the Holy One says. Now, what is interesting about it is this. And there is no definite article before it. And all, what he's saying, it says, holy. So here it's used to say, now God, he, he takes on a proper name to say, I'm simply holy. Now, what is one of the greatest declarations of God's holiness in the book of Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 6, is it not? Well, let's just remind ourselves of it. Look at Isaiah 6 again. And it says, 
In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord, I saw Yahweh, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings and Two, they covered their face, and two, they covered their feet, and with two, they... And one called out to the other and said, what did they say? Read it with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his what? Of his glory. And what happens? I mean, imagine this experience, and it says, the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then he said, woe is me, for I am what? Ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm amongst a people of unclean lips. And I love this part. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. We said he's the one that sits above the horizon. He's the king of kings. I mean, think about this for a moment. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. But he doesn't in this moment judge Isaiah. He takes what he provides for Isaiah, does he not? And so this is our God. Um, look at this idea of holy in Isaiah, holy one in Isaiah. And it's connected with certain words that tell us more about God and his holiness. Look at Isaiah 41, Isaiah 41, verse 15. And we will develop this thought uh, later in our study when we come to 41 in the idea of not fearing. We, we did a bit some weeks ago, but we'll go further into why we should not fear. Verse 13 says, do not fear. I will help you. Do not fear worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord and your redeemer, who is the holy one of Israel. So here, God's holiness is associated with his what? His redemptive helping hand. Let's go further. Look at verse 16 of Isaiah 41. He says, you will now winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the stone will scatter them. But you rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. So here, God's holiness is associated with his absolute worth. You will glory in him. Let's go even further. Look at verse 20. It comes up again. That they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. So now God's holiness is associated with what? His sovereignty. I'm the one that has done it. I have created it. Then look with me at Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, 14. And what does it say there? Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon and I will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldean in which they rejoice. So again, God's holiness, he is the redeemer who will in fact fulfill his plan. And then let's go to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, 11. Again, his holiness associated with what? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. So he is the maker. That is, he does all things according to his holy plan. And then as well, look at Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48. We see him there again as redeemer. So thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the holy one of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you 
to profit who leads you in the way which you shall go. So now redemption here, even more specifically, I will guide you spiritually, but you must reach out your hand. Not of these pagans, not for these false gods. I am your redeemer. And then 49. And this is an important thought to even arguments this morning. God's holiness then associated with what? In 49 verse 7. 49 7 it says, Thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel, and its holy one, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will rise and see. Princes will also bow down because of Yahweh, who is what? What does it say? Faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So pause for a moment. I was in a conversation actually with um, Elders Prayer Time, Mike Riccardi. I asked, so what are you preaching today? And he says he's preaching a series right now on um, redemption. He's talking about propitiation. So we got into this conversation about propitiation and what are the implications of that? If Christ is, in fact, the propitiation for our sins, that means that um, God's wrath is satisfied. And if God's wrath is satisfied, uh, he does that only for his redeemed. There can be no potential satisfaction in God's wrath. Because if we say there's a potential satisfaction in God's wrath, then how does it go from potential to realization? It has to be based on me. It has to be that I make a choice. God declared when he sent his only begotten son to die, he is a propitiation, a satisfaction for our sins, the sins of his elect people. And all the wrath of God that was due to every one of us fell upon his dear and precious son. And for that, the father was pleased. It's five. This holy standard was appeased. And you say, well, he's not going to watch out for me. He, he will not keep his promises to me. He will not be faithful to me. It's impossible not to be because he is, as it's declared here, faithful, a faithful God. Trust him. Now, go back to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. Notice, if you will, so there's no one to whom you will liken to me. Surely the idols you won't. I have no equal. And then notice what he says, verse 26, very curious language here. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. Now, why do I say, why is this curious language? Because if you lift up, you find it in other occasions where it was sinful to lift up your eyes and look to the stars. Um, an example of it, turn with me to 2 Kings. Look with me to 2 Kings. Because the people of God would look into the heavens because they were influenced by the pagans who looked to the heavens and they would begin to be involved in what? The worship of the stars. And this is why he's making this point time and time again that I created these stars. I am unlike these other deities are false deities. I'm not amongst the stars. I created the stars. And then in 2 um, Kings 17, it's 16. Um, no, yeah, why am I looking at the, 
I was saying, that's not it. The bowl of flour that you shall mill. That's in first King. So second Kings 17 and then verse 16 says what? It says, um, verse 14, however, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in Yahweh, their God. Now, there is that language that's similar, is it not? We already talked about listening and knowing and hearing and understanding. What did they do? They stiffened their neck. Verse 15, they rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he had warned. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to be like them. They forsook all the commandments of Yahweh, their God, and made for themselves molten images, even two calves and made an Asherah, which is a deplorable, deplorable deity. And worship all. So they're worshiping the hosts of heavens. And what does that mean? They're worshiping the stars. And then look with me. We won't go there. But you see the same thing in Second Kings 21, 13 as well. They're worshiping all the stars. And this would have been like the Babylonian culture. To gaze into the heavens and worship these false deities. Don't be like them. And he, he continues the argument. Notice what he says in verse 26. He says, see, I created these stars, so why should you worship them? The one who leads forth their host by number. And the language here is curious because in, when it says their host, is a word that was used in military context. Um, so he leads his host by number. And think about someone being in a military operation. What you're simply saying is, okay, now report for duty. Um, you're hearing a lot, and you hear a great deal about um, perhaps this wasn't the best strategy. You hear about convoys that are 40 miles long. You hear about um, information perhaps not getting to the front lines. Um, that's the idea of military communication. Uh, you tell someone to be in this place at this time. And what God is saying, he calls the host by number It's like he is saying, I am your ultimate king and commander. You go where you should. You stay here. It is time for you to die out. You will splinter off. You will continue to give warmth to the earth. And this is what he is saying. This great commander leads them forth. So if he can lead forth the hosts of heaven, can he lead forth his people back in his time and in his way? There is a, a vastness to God. Notice what else he said. He calls them all by name. Although they're vast beyond even accounting, he knows every one of them. And why does he do it? On what basis can he do it? Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Now, the vastness of the heavens. Um, I want to show you something. And um, when we think about the heavens, putting things in perspective, okay? There's our sun. Um, 14 million kilometers, Jupiter, uh, 140 kilometers, Earth, 12,000, okay? Uh, That's really small, is it not? Pretty insignificant. But God says, that's just one little portion. It's just like a curtain to me. It's like a tent. Let's keep going. Then um, some of the largest stars here, if you were to see Betelgeuse, um, you can't even see it. And this illustration is invisible. And our sun 
is actually right there. Here's our sun right here. That's our sun. You can't see it. Jupiter is invisible to the eye. So if Jupiter is invisible, think about Earth. There's nothing. And he says the nations, the people, they're like dust on a scale. The nations, you're like a drop from the bucket. Because we think about the earth. I mean, I go for my walk. I'm thinking, wow, three miles. This is a long way. (laughs) Friend, (laughs) take this on. (laughs) Right? Something else for you to consider. The next slide. Now, the largest known star. Um, We think about earth. Here is the orbit of Jupiter. Here's the orbit of Saturn. Think about the wonderful God we serve. Um, This star is 1,500 times the diameter of the sun. And even larger than the orbit of Jupiter. That's large, is it not? The next one for your consideration. Now, um, and because you can't hardly read it here. So what you have is Cephei, uh, they right now say perhaps this is the largest star that we at least know, but we see its, its um, circumference, its <laughs> diameter, sorry, that's the word, diameter, is that of the orbit of Saturn. And in the, in the midst of it, here's Jupiter, Mars, Earth, Venus, Mercury, obviously the, the hot planet, Nothing, minuscule. The next slide. Our sun compared to the second largest star. The scale is it's just a dot. It's like you take a pin and do that. But wait, you say, well, there's more. <laughs> and there's more. Our sun, the speck that's next to Cephae, right there. That's our sun. So God says, I stretch it out like a curtain. The heavens, they're just like a, a tent to me and I can dwell in it. It is insignificant to me. And you wonder whether or not I can keep my promises? You, you think the Babylonians have anything against me? Can they thwart my plans? They cannot. And notice this, there's even more. Um, Traveling on an airline, and I've been on, say, 600 miles per hour, really about 560 miles per hour. It's 42 hours, but it's 600. That was better. It's going to take 42 hours to get around the globe. If we were to make our way to Canis Majoris, it's going to take 1,100 years to go around the star. So I can get on an airliner, and if, in fact, it had enough fuel, I can get around the globe in about 42 hours. Okay, I could take off Los Angeles, go east, come back around, land, 42 hours. If I were to do that same thing on this star, 1,100 years. 1,100 years. And that's actually uh, something from the, the Hubble telescope. And then I thought about it, calculated it, and that's what it comes out to, verified in other places. <laughs> <laughs> 1,100 years. And you say, here's the next thought for you. Not one is missing. Because this is what he says. Not one of them is missing. Why are they not missing? Because I call the the host by number. They are at my beckoning. 
I am the king of the earth. So if I'm the God that controls all of these things, don't you think I know what's happening to your life? Don't you think I'm aware? A final thought for you. It should be a short trial. I mentioned this longest jury trial, seven years, $15 million. Um, Here it is. Oh, that's not it. I know it, though. Um, 1959 murder case. I won't give you the details unnecessary. At that point in time, if someone simply confessed um, to a murder, there was no need to present evidence. Do you know how long the trial lasted? 30 30 seconds. You did it. You said you did it. We accept it. You're guilty. 30 seconds. Now, things have changed now. Legal counsel must put forth evidence. You say, well, what's the point, Hargrove? Here's my opinion, and I think this is what Isaiah is saying. God said it. (laughs) Believe it. It's done. No need to spend seven years and $15 million. God has made the declaration. Will you believe it, and will you trust him? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word you give us. Uh, that you are great God. And even as we put things in perspective in the scale of your creation, it is a wonder. So give us grace. Help us to rest in you as we should. In Christ's name, amen.